Please pray with me. Father, you have given us the ability to see. We haven't been able to see yet, as we one day will, all who are in Christ, your glory, your face, for every tribe and tongue and nation who have children there worshiping you for all eternity, bringing you glory. We thank you for your holy word, for the promises that it gives to us, for the ways in which it feeds our souls and will feed them even now. So as we open your word and begin to study the gospel of Mark, your gospel, we pray that you would overwhelm us, cause us to be astonished. Let us see all that is offered to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. As I mentioned already, we're beginning today a study that will take us at least into May through the Gospel of Mark. This morning, we're going to look at one verse as I begin to introduce, in a way of survey, the Gospel of Mark. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. It is our tradition. It's a good one even when we're only looking at one verse. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The beginning. I want you to imagine for a moment this man, John Mark, I'm going to talk more about him in just a second, but just for a minute, imagine what God has called him to do. At this church, we believe that every word in this book, the Holy Bible, is true. It's perfect. And we believe that the Holy Spirit carried along men to write his word. So at this moment in Mark's life, John Mark's life, He was carried along by the Holy Spirit and led to write these exact words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, beginning. Everyone who is in Christ has a beginning, and actually many beginnings. You come to faith and are saved once for all, but God's mercy is given to you each day, beginning again. Mercy after mercy. We all enter into new beginnings already. Bill prayed it, I shared it in the children's sermon. Many of you will be starting school tomorrow. Some have started already. Others of you are starting a new job or looking for a job because your new beginning is you don't, you don't have one. Beginnings are not always fun. And sometimes they are. But Mark is bringing us this word from his gospel. And he starts with the beginning. 
Now, what's really interesting about Mark's gospel is this is the first gospel. Not the first gospel just compared to Matthew and Luke and John. It's the first time a gospel has ever been written. There is no genre like this in literature. What Mark is going to do has never been done before. And over 2,000 years later, the words he was carried along to write to point people to the person Jesus Christ are doing the same thing even today. It's amazing. What I wanna do this morning is I wanna ask five questions. I wanna ask, who is Mark? When did John Mark write this gospel and what was going on around him? What is unique about Mark's gospel? Why did he write it? And why do we need it? As we move through those questions, I, I hope to lay a foundation for you to begin to see the significance of what the gospel means and how God in his faithfulness has given us his holy word to feed us, encourage us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. So let's begin with, who is Mark? The gospel actually never says Mark wrote it. It's anonymous. But we know through church history and looking at Mark's life through the gospel of Acts that John Mark was a companion of Paul and Barnabas and Peter. They were contemporaries. The book of Acts tells us that John Mark went on missionary journeys with Paul and Barnabas. It also tells us that he fell short. He left them. And when he left them, it discouraged Paul so greatly that when Barnabas later suggested that Mark join them again on another mission, Paul rejected that idea completely. And so sharp was the division between Paul and Barnabas that they now went on separate journeys to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But, and I think this is so encouraging, the man God called to write this gospel, the first gospel written, was restored. He was restored back into the mission, even in Paul's heart. Paul's heart towards John Mark changed radically over time as he references Mark in three of his letters, affirming his importance to Paul. In his last letter written to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, this is what it says, chapter four, verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. This is the man who wrote 13 books of the Bible, speaking about the man who's going to write the first gospel. Peter's, Peter also influenced Mark. And most commentators agree that Mark's gospel is actually the work of Peter telling John Mark the stories of what it was like to be an eyewitness of Christ. Most believe that Mark was simply a secretary recording the words that Peter had proclaimed and preached. In the early church fathers, you see this description that's present and they're trustworthy. 
Around A.D. 140, Papias, who was bishop of the church of Hierapolis, recorded this statement. Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord, but not, however, in order. But he did record them. Credit goes to Mark as the secretary. One of the early Christian writers, Irenaeus of Lyons, also affirmed John Mark as the author of this gospel. He said this, after the death of Peter and Paul, Mark, the disciple of Peter, also transmitted to us in writings the thing the things preached by Peter. And as we read Mark closely, you will actually see Peter's personality in this gospel. Well, when did he write the gospel? I think what I'm about to share with you is really fascinating, really frightening, and deeply encouraging for the time we live in. To understand the context of when John Mark wrote his gospel carried along by the Holy Spirit, you need to imagine yourself being a Christian in first century Rome. Instead of gathering freely like we have been able to do in our country, which is such a gift, even though things are strange now for sure, it wasn't this way in the first century Rome. In order for the Christians to gather for worship, they went under the city. You might hear terms like the underground church. This church would worship literally underground. They would worship in the catacombs with skeletons and cadavers around them and on the way to the place where they would worship. Why? Because there was an emperor named Nero. And Nero was violent deadly in persecuting Christians. So when you sense persecution coming against the church and that creates fear in you, recognize that the church of Jesus Christ all over the world has always been attacked. It's always been attacked by people in power, whether named power given power, or just simply the, fat, the power of being carried along by the spirit of the world, the spirit that is at work among the sons of disobedience. Nero, though in history, was one of the worst in terms of how he treated Christians. In AD 64, a great fire devastated Rome we see fires often now in our country that just scorch the earth. In the city of Rome in 64, the fire raged and spread to seven wards of the city, raging for seven days. And the destruction was unthinkable. I mean, think about the technology we have to put out fires and what they did not have. The destruction and the death was unbelievable. And while many people felt like Nero actually was the one who started it because of his madness, in order to deflect the blame that was coming his way, he accused the Christians, who he described as antisocial and anti-religious, for the arson. 
And so if you were in Christ, and he knew you were in Christ, deadly persecution would come your way or towards those who also claim Christ. There were a number of ways he persecuted, but I'm going to mention three, and they're graphic. First, he would clothe Christians in animal skins, animals that had been killed and skinned. He would put the Christians in those clothes, and then he would set loose feral dogs who would assume that they were animals, and those dogs would destroy those people underneath those skins. If not the dogs, he would bring Christians into the Colosseum, and there for entertainment, they would watch as the lions tore them apart. He also, in order to light his own personal gardens, would have Christians dipped in tar and set on fire so that their bodies would be that which would illuminate the darkness. It was around this time, in the aftermath of this destruction, that the first written account of the life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings, first appeared. So imagine being in that church, being among those people underneath the city, in the catacombs, amongst the cadavers and the skeletons. And one day, suddenly, this gospel, written by Mark, is read to you. All pointing to Jesus. All pointing to the one true Savior of the world. What's unique about Mark's gospel? Third question. Well, it's unique in its brevity. 16 chapters. It's unique in its swiftness. It moves quickly through the life of Christ. There is no genealogy. There is not a lot of prelude. It just begins. I think the way Peter would and how Peter preached. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is detailed. It's descriptive but it moves quickly. There are words that Mark uses, as the other gospels do, but some that are unique to Mark that he really wants to highlight. Though some of these words are in all the gospels, he certainly is highlighting the word gospel. He's highlighting the idea of kingdom. He uses a word in the Greek, euthus, E-U-T-H-U-S, which means immediately or straight away. And why that's significant is because he uses that word 42 times in the 16 chapters. And it's only used 12 other times in the whole New Testament. That's significant. And it gives you an idea of how Mark is writing. And one of my favorite words that's in the Gospel of Mark is a word you will see often. And it's the word astonished. In chapter 1, it says they were astonished at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority. Mark was speaking of Jesus. Though it's swift and though it's short, 
There is much to unpack in this gospel. And some of you might be thinking, I know the gospel of Mark. And I would tell you, you don't know everything about the gospel of Mark. His gospel, like all of God's word, is alive. It's living. Every time we open it, it moves into us. It does a work that only God's word by the power of his spirit can do. It's short and swift, but it demands us soaking, meditating. It's what C.S. Lewis calls in Mere Christianity the difference between paint and stain. We don't simply need to paint on a new color with a, a, a bit of better understanding intellectually of the Gospel of Mark. We need to soak like stain that penetrates into the woods these words. As I mentioned, we're going to preach on this through May, I'm imagining. J.C. Ryle and his commentary on the book of Mark, written in the 1800s, said the best commentary I've ever seen on Mark was actually written in the 1600s. It was 1,666 pages written by a man who preached the gospel of Mark named George Petter. He began the gospel of Mark on June 7th, and he finished it on May 28th. Hearing that, you might think, well, that's even a little bit longer than you're going to preach it because we're in August already. But here's what I didn't tell you. He started preaching the gospel of Mark on June 7th, 1618. And he finished preaching the gospel of Mark on May 28th, 1643. That's 25 years and roughly 1,300 sermons because there's so much to see and so much to hear. And that's one of Mark's themes. You see, but you don't see. You hear, but you don't hear. You believe, yet you still have unbelief. And in all of that, Jesus, the Son of God, because of the gospel, gives us mercy. So why did he write it? Fourth question. He tells us in the first sentence, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you need good news today? We all need good news. But this is the good news that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Children, fix your eyes up on the cross. Mark wrote this gospel to tell people who the person Jesus is. He wrote this gospel to persuade people to believe that this man who walked up on this earth for 33 years, really is the son of God. He is the gospel. He is the good news. And that good news should astonish us. That God, demonstrating his own love for us in this, sent his son to die that we might live forever. Sinclair Ferguson says, Mark begins his gospel 
by telling us first that the gospel is about Jesus Christ. It is not good advice about how to live, but good news about a person. And one of the ways I think our vision has been dimmed, at least mine has, is that I often forget that when Jesus said, come follow me, and when he said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. He was calling us to himself, not just a worldview, not just a Christian worldview. That matters, by the way. But what's most important is that he was calling us to himself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And so great is the gospel that we're told that once in Christ, we are in Christ forever. The gospel is not just a manual for how to live. It is not just good advice about having peace. It is about being one with the living God. This good news should astonish us. Why do we need it? Two words. We need to be anchored in the gospel always. We need to know the gospel. We need to remember the gospel. We need to be anchored in the gospel. I love the way Bill prayed this morning. With disease, a pandemic like none of us have ever experienced, and division that is so, just so sad to see right now. There is great need for believers to be anchored in the gospel. As we seek to be salt and light in a world that is being ravaged by evil, by sin and division and disease and all other forms of brokenness because of this dark world, we need to be lit up with Christ inside us. As the world is seeking justice, we have the gospel which speaks of biblical justice. It also speaks of how we should behave in the midst of all these debates for his glory and the hope of extending Christ with good news. We need to be anchored in the gospel. We also need the gospel to hear these narratives over and over again so that we can remain, and if we've lost it, become again astonished, amazed by, overwhelmed by, the truth that God, because of his great love for us, sent his son to die on the cross that we might live forever. Wherever you're reading in the Bible right now, whether you're in the Old Testament or whether you're in an epistle, I want to encourage you for the rest of your life, to always be in a gospel as well. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. One of the men who pours into me, who doesn't live in this country, taught me not many years ago that he reads the gospel of John 
at least a portion of it every day. He reads Mark and Matthew and Luke at times too, but that's a gospel that he reads every day. And guess what? Every day he sees new things because the word of God is alive. We need to be anchored in the gospel. We need it. Someone that often is used by God to cause me to once again be astonished by the good news that I believe, that you believe, yet we struggle with belief, is Charles Spurgeon. And I did not plan to put this as the conclusion of my sermon. The sermon had been written before I went to bed last night, but I went to bed and I read Charles Spurgeon's evening devotion. And I just want to read a portion of what I read last night because it's astonishing. It's really, really astonishing. Spurgeon writes, my master, capital M, has riches beyond the count of arithmetic, beyond the measurement of reason, beyond the dream of imagination or the eloquence of words. They are unsearchable. You may look and study and weigh, but Jesus is a greater savior than you think him to be when your thoughts are at their greatest. My Lord is more ready to pardon, the, pardon than you are to sin, more able to forgive than you to transgress. My master is more willing to supply your wants than you are to confess them. Never tolerate low thoughts of my Lord Jesus. When you put the crown on his head, you will only crown him with silver when he deserves gold. My master has riches of happiness to bestow upon you now. He can make you to lie down in green pastures and lead you beside still waters. There is no music like the music of his pipe when he is the shepherd and you are the sheep and you lie down at his feet. There is no love like his. Neither earth nor heaven can match it. To know Christ and to be found in him. Oh, this is life. This is joy. This is marrow and fatness. This is the gospel. And this is astonishing. And may God open our eyes and open our ears again to see Jesus, the person who says, come, follow me. If you have never surrendered your life to Christ, if you are seeking to know who he is, if you are beginning to feel a prompting in your spirit that says, I need to know him, I need to know more about him, then please email us. 
connect at pcpc.org. Let us know. Or talk to somebody that you know is a Christian about what it means to profess faith in Christ. And as I close this in prayer, if that's the desire of your heart, pray to him now, simply asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to cover you with his righteousness, to make you his own. And you can leave assured that you are his. After this prayer, we're going to sing a very well-known hymn. It's a hymn about vision. It's a hymn about the cross. May he open our eyes to see again. Lord Jesus, there's not a man or a woman or a child that's here who has seen perfectly. There's not one of us who before you call us home will have absolutely perfect vision. But if we are in you, you've given us enough to see that you, Jesus, are the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe it's very possible that even at this moment, you're doing that work in our lives, that there might be those in our midst or those watching online who have yet to receive you alone for salvation. So Lord, would you enable them to pray to you Friends, simply pray and ask Jesus to forgive you and save you from your sins. Lord, for those who may be praying that now, would you overwhelm them with your goodness and presence and put them in fellowship with others that they might grow? Lord, help them to feel the astonishment of what it means to be rescued from eternal separation from you. And Lord, for all who already know you, would you not let our familiarity breed contempt? Would you open our eyes again to see what Spurgeon said so beautifully and even more powerfully what Mark proclaimed as you, Holy Spirit, carried him along? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.